I don't think there's a holiday that I don't struggle with because I think uh, Satan works really hard on me in the holiday periods because I'm distracted. I'm overfed. <laughs> uh, focused on really some pretty temporal things pretty easily. So I expect and suspect that God's people will be as well. If I were sitting with my family right now, I would want to tell them, acknowledge first, I guess, that they've got Lego sets unbuilt, still in the box, you know, they were opened yesterday. They take some time to build, so they, we didn't let them stay up all night. So there are Lego sets yet to be built. There are games yet to be played, and I would ask them to just put those things aside because we need to eat, we need nourishment. So I'm asking that of this people this morning. I need focus. I need the Holy Spirit to give me sort of tunnel vision into the Word here. And I'm asking that for y'all as well, that we can put aside uh, some of the holiday activities and um, the Legos yet to be built and that we can really engage this because this matters. Let's pray together. Lord, first this morning, I want to pray for another church in our community. I want to pray for Aldersgate Church and uh, for Rick and Julie Prettyman. Lord, I pray first for Rick's worship. I pray that as he is uh, preparing to preach each week, as he is uh, loving his wife as Christ loved the church, as he is shepherding his children, that first and foremost, he's a worshiper, that he's daily, if not daily, then weekly, sort of undone by the journey through the Word as he prepares to teach and preach. And I pray that what he's teaching and preaching finds purchase in him first and that it's expressed first in his marriage, in his home, and then among his people and from the pulpit. And Lord, I pray that the people of God receive the Word that he's unpacking each week as it's run him through. Lord, I pray for Aldersgate and I pray that they will be a church that uh, is enjoying you, that is uh, guarded from doing the dance and glad-handing each other and uh, going through the motions, but that they will be a people who are truly overwhelmed, wrecked, scandalized, ravaged by grace. Lord, I pray whatever way possible that we can serve alongside Aldersgate, I pray that we will be attentive to that, whether it's in the workplace or in a neighborhood that we can truly cheer for each other and cheer for your name and your fame and renown among a different people in this community, Aldersgate. Lord, for this church this morning, I pray for an attentiveness that is beyond any one of us. I pray for an ability to communicate that I know is beyond me. I pray for the unction of the Holy Spirit as he engages people's hearts um, personally and specifically, but also corporately. I pray that this people is engaged and, and tuned in and hungry this morning for good nourishment. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to John chapter 17. We have a plan for unpacking this chapter that we've been following these last few weeks. The chapter is really kind of an ocean of truth. It's a prayer between... God the Son and God the Father on the eve of his cross. So really kind of getting into the gravity of this prayer, imagine what it would be like if you had only hours left before you died. 
and you knew that you only had hours left. I would suspect that the things that you asked for and the things that you said would be pretty important. Just imagine somebody gives you your final words or your final meal. You're going to think through what you ask for and what you say. And this prayer in John chapter 17 is his, are there, his final recorded words before he goes to the arrest and then the cross. So they have great, great importance. They also have great depth. This chapter 17, every time I read it, I'm just sort of swimming. My head is swimming by the time I've finished it. I read it, and if you've paid attention, you've noticed that I read the chapter every time, even though we may just consider a verse or a section, because I want us to see the prayer together. By the end of us moving through this together as a church, John chapter 17, we'll likely have read John chapter 17 corporately 20 times. That's greatness. If the word's not going to return void, just us reading this chapter 20 times as a people is going to honor the living God, and it's going to do something to us. While we're still going to be swimming together, we're going to have a better grasp on what we're engaging. This morning, we're engaging really the second part or the second request in, of five in this chapter. He has five petitions that he brings before the Father on the eve of his cross. The first was for glory. And the second is for protection. Not his own protection, but protection for his followers. So the last couple of weeks, we've been considering protection. And this week will be our last week to engage this second request for protection. Let's start with reading the chapter. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me. And they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you that these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. This morning, I want you to pay really close, special attention to verses 11, 12, and 15. They sort of synthesize today. We've looked at these three verses the last couple of weeks and sort of considered a few things there, but I want to just kind of melt them together this week. And this week, we're going to consider what protection is. What I want you to synthesize or bring together in verses 11, 12, and 15 is the phrase, keep them in your name, I've kept them in your name, and keep them from the evil one. Those things go together when we're talking about protection. His prayer for protection for his people that he prays on the eve of his cross, mind you, pay attention to the timing, the prayer that he prays involves remaining in the world, not being removed from the world. It has to do with being kept in God's name, and it involves protection from the evil one. What unfolded in the months and years after this prayer, and what has happened in our lives and the lives of other believers in the last 2,000 years has caused us as a church to stop and not just read on over this and move on. It's caused us to stop and say, wait a second, what is he actually asking for here? Because I know he's going to get what he asks for. Because the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He's the uber-righteous. What is he praying for here? It seems it's pretty important if it's one of five things he's asking for on the eve of his cross, this prayer for protection. The thing that's really slowed us down and helped us really kind of consider what's going on here, what's at play here, is seeing what happened to those 11, the men that he prayed for right then and there. What happened to the church in the last 2,000 years and some of the things that have happened to y'all. When we see our Lord who loved them and we know loves us praying for their protection, yet you see these very men he's praying for crucified, beheaded, flogged, beaten, hanged, skinned alive, hacked to death, you have to wonder what in the world is he praying for? If he's praying for protection from the evil one, when you consider what happened to the 11, the specific men that are there that he's praying for, at least in the immediate moment, and you see what happened to him, you got to go, man, it doesn't look like the protection that I would want. At face value, it looks like the evil one has had his way with them. It's caused us to stop and really examine this. I bet some of you would agree and feel like the evil one has had his way with you at times. 
Like some pretty terrible things have happened to some of you. One thing or many things in your lives where you've wondered, God, where in the world were you? God, what in the world are you up to? This is a good study to help us understand what he prayed for that night and what has been granted his believers. Godly protection. First, we considered why he left them there. Why does he say, I'm not asking that, I, that you take them out of the world, but I'm asking you to keep them or protect them from the evil one. Why is he leaving them here? If he's already chosen them, if he already knows them, why leave them in this place where he knows what's going to unfold for them? Like Moses, Elijah, Jonah, and Paul, he had plans for them, plans for glory and design. They were instruments in his work, so it wasn't time for them to go home, although they wanted to. He had plans in place, and they would be taken home on his terms. Secondly, we considered what protection isn't. In some ways, we've already preached this morning's message, looking at the outside, what protection isn't. It's not worldly safety. Contrary to what we may want, the protection he prayed for here is not the same thing as safety. Last week, we considered, in fact, that the narrow way involves a hill of difficulty. There's no other way it involves the hill of difficulty. Paul encouraged fellow sufferers in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The tribulation and suffering may be subtle. It may be the daily work of plotting. Or it may be more overt. It may be suffering in a difficult marriage, yet not quitting it. It may be suffering with difficult health issues. It may go to the far extreme and actually mean martyrdom. There will be other routes around the hill of difficulty, but they don't lead you to the promised land. For the way is narrow and it involves the hill of difficulty. That's the only way to get there. Today, we're going to look exactly what he prayed for. If it wasn't worldly safety, what exactly was it? We're going to refer to it this morning as godly protection in contrast with worldly safety. And we're going to explore it together looking at three things. First, turn to the book of Exodus chapter 33. First, godly protection is found in his name. As you turn there, I'm going to reread verse 11 of John chapter 17, and I want you to listen to what he's saying here. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And then in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I guarded them. And then later in verse 15, he's praying for their protection to be kept from the evil one. There's a tie between being kept in his name and being kept from the evil one. Being kept in his name, that's the protection that we're talking about here. That's the protection that he's praying for as he kept them, a.k.a. guarded them in his name. That's what he's praying for not, for, his, not only for his immediate 11, but for his future believers as well, to be kept in his name. Now, I think probably the most difficult thing to prepare for on this sermon was to deal with this specific issue, 
To be kept in his name is just so airy, isn't it? It's just so spiritual and sort of ethereal. I like the idea of a shield or a bunker or a gun to hide behind or a tank to ride around in. But the notion of being hid, hidden and protected and guarded in his name is really a difficult thing to engage because it's spiritual and ethereal and airy. It's hard to really see it as real, tangible, and useful protection. But then we have our Old Testament that helps us interpret what we're seeing. Exodus chapter 33 is where I had you turn. We're going to go to the Exodus and look at some passages in the Exodus to consider what it means to be protected and guarded in his name. In chapter 33, I just give you kind of a bird's eye view of what's happened so far. The nation of Israel has been in slavery for 400 years or over 400 years. God's told Moses to go lead his people out of Egypt. And God, through the mighty acts of judgment, called the plagues, be familiar with some of them, the Nile turned to blood, frogs, gnats, all these crazy things, hail, uh, livestock die. And then the most terrible thing, the Passover, where the firstborn in every household, including the firstborn pets and livestock, drop dead. And then God leads his people out of Egypt on the dry ground through the Red Sea. He leads them to Mount Sinai. The, the, the Egyptian army is swallowed up in the Red Sea as the water folds back in on top of them. They go to Mount Sinai and they re receive the law. And they're parked at Mount Sinai at this point. And in verse 18 of chapter 33, Moses says, God, please show me your glory. If I'm to lead this people, I want to see your glory. And God said to him, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I'm going to pass before you and I'm going to proclaim my name. And later in chapter 34, verse 6, he does that very thing. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed and here's what his name is in the explanation. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He passed before Moses and shared his name. In this context, what he's sharing there is his character of being merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, yet being just and holy and not very forgetful. We've considered this passage before as a church and considered this weird conundrum of how in the world is this name explained, and then we realize that Christ explained that, how God could be both merciful and gracious, yet just and holy and not forgetful. So when he's speaking of his name, we can know that he's referring to his character. That's a given, but I want to show you something else that it means. Turn to Exodus chapter 6. His name represents his character. But what I want to show you in the next few minutes is that his name is connected to his power. And I want to warn you up front, it's ethereal and airy. And it's spiritual, and it's hard to get your hands around, but yet it's good. 
In Exodus chapter 6, by this point, God has told Moses, I want you to go lead my people out of Egypt. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. This is important. We're talking about the protection in his name. He's telling a people that he's at Moses. He's telling Moses to eventually get to the people. I'm going to lead you out of slavery. You're going to see my power displayed, and I'm going to do what we used to call in the cadet corps at a and I'm going to drop handles with you. You're going to know me by Yahweh. See, your forefathers only knew me as El Shaddai or Elohim. You will know me by first name. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. You think he wants his people to connect his name to his greatness and what he's about to do? Just in this one passage, in verses 1 through 8, he connects his name to the reality that he's remembered the covenant... He's going to bring them out. He's going to deliver them. He's going to redeem them. He's going to take them to be his people. He says, I will be your God. I will bring you into a promised land. I will give you this land as a possession. All these mighty, awesome, great verbs are associated with his name, Yahweh. Look at him again. Remember, bring, deliver, redeem, take, be, bring, give. He wants them to see his name connected to his might. And his power, he says, that's my name, because that's what I do. I'm mighty, and I remember, I bring, I deliver, I redeem, I take, I will be, I will bring, I will give. The heartbreak is in verse 9. Moses shared these things that God told him with the people about his name and about all these things that were in store for this people who's been in slavery. Moses spoke thus to this people of Israel. He told them what God told them, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. It seems that these people could not hear what God was saying about his greatness because they hadn't seen it yet. He's telling them about how great his name is, and they're like, whatever. I got stripes across my back. From making bricks and being beaten. My hands are calloused and bruised. I got no use for his name because I haven't seen his might yet. This was an encouragement for me in preparing for this sermon on the day after Christmas, knowing that we're overfed and maybe inattentive, many of us, if you're like me, is realizing that God's people will enjoy that name. 
Those who haven't seen his might or his power go, whatever. When are you going to be done talking? But those who've seen his might and seen his power, I've seen it in this people. You'll hear these connections to his name and you go, yes. Because I've seen him do these things. I've seen him remember his covenant. I've seen him bring people out. I've seen him deliver people. I've seen him redeem people. I've experienced him being or taking people and being their God. I see him bringing a people into the promised land and giving them land as a possession. But if you haven't seen any of that happen, you go, whatever. His name, just a weird name, means nothing to me. But his name is associated with his power. Look at Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. This is embedded within the details about the seventh plague. In verse 16, God is speaking to Pharaoh. He's passing the news through Moses to Pharaoh. It says, for this purpose, I've raised you up, Pharaoh. And you could say Egypt. For this purpose. If we want to know what Pharaoh was raised up for, why Pharaoh was so mighty, why he had all that gold, why he had those pointy buildings called pyramids all over his land, why his nation seemed so great and massive, God raised them up for a purpose to show you, Pharaoh, my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh and Egypt were raised up for a purpose of God displaying his might and his power against them. I did a little research and found that by this point, all of the major pyramids had been built. If we climbed into that context 1,500 years before Christ, this would be 1,500 or so B.C., the pyramids, some of them had been built already for 1,000 years. 2,800 or something like that B.C. was when the first recorded pyramids were built. And they were all finished by about 1,800 B.C. If you were an Egyptian or you lived nearby, you can imagine the fame and renown of Egypt would be vast. You can imagine that Pharaoh would be pretty intimidating with all that gold. He's got his own burial chamber that's this big pointy thing called a pyramid. He's got people that worship him that think he is God. God says, I've raised you up just to show you my power. The glory and splendor of Pharaoh must have been Amazing. We don't know who it was in this time. It could have been Ramesses, Amenhotep, Tutmosis. We don't know who it was. But we can trust that they were famous and renowned in this time. And God says, I've raised you up only to become bywords of God's greatness as he liberates an ordinary, unremarkable bunch of slaves from among them through mighty acts of judgment. Because his name and his power go together. I'm doing this so that you may know or that my name may be proclaimed everywhere as great. Look at Exodus chapter 15. By this point, the mighty acts of judgment have happened. The final one being the Passover where there was not a home in Egypt that didn't have a cry in it where they find somebody dead. The nation of Israel crossed the, the Red Sea on dry ground. They've come off on the other side. The Red Sea is folded in on the army 
of Egypt. And in chapter 15, Moses has been paying attention to might and power and his name. In chapter 15, I'll go back to verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. So then they crossed the Red Sea. They're on the other side. And Moses and the people of Israel bust out in song. And here's how the song goes. I will sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots. This mighty army, this mighty Pharaoh, this mighty people that's been raised up. Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he cast into the sea. As his, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O God, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, O you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I'll pursue, I'll overtake, I'll divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill in them. I'll draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But yet you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They, <coughs> they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Like lead, like a stone. Who is like you, O Lord? Among the gods, who's like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your hand, and the earth swallowed them. Moses got the significance of his name because Moses had experienced his power. That's the same name that Christ is, is connecting to in this prayer on the eve of his cross. When he's praying for his 11 and he's praying for us to be protected in the name, that's the same name that was put on display here in the Exodus. It's the same name that was behind the mighty acts of judgment. It's the same name that at the flaring of his nostrils blew the waters aside where the nation of Israel crossed on dry land. That's the same name that folded the Red Sea in on top of the Egyptian army the same name of protection prayed for on the eve of Christ's cross. Yes, it's airy. It's ethereal and mysterious. But when we see it in motion, then we go, there it is. I see it because I've climbed into the Exodus. And now I get it. Moses isn't the only one that connected to the power and might of his name. Turn to Psalm chapter 20. Another man connected to the power of God's name, a man named David. In Psalm chapter 20, I'm going to begin reading, and we're going to focus primarily on verse 7, so likely you'll be there by the time we get to verse 7. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Just connect to the hill of difficulty, the thing that we'll all go through. This narrow path that involves suffering, Paul promised these people that they must endure suffering to inherit the kingdom of God. May you in the day of trouble 
Or may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's the name that Moses saw on display. David saw it in motion. He said, I'm not going to trust in the horses and chariots, which he certainly used as he's defeating other people. He says, I'm not going to trust in those things. I trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Think about all the stuff that we look to for protection. Our versions of horses and chariots, police, guns, Brinks home security. The things that we look to for protection, a bigger government, maybe. Better health care. Maybe a better social security system. For protection, we might look to airbags or seatbelts or organic food or maybe our 401K or maybe we look to our friends or our family or our job for protection. And while we may use those things, we've got to connect to this picture here and see the might and power of his name and realize that as David used those horses and chariots, we may use these things, but we do not trust in them. We trust in this airy thing, this faith thing, the name of the living God. We trust with Moses and David in his name. Other psalmists got it. Listen to this. Don't turn. Just listen. Psalm 33, verse 21. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Psalm 44, verse 5. A mascal, which is a teaching psalm of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah got it. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not by my bow, for not in my bow do I trust nor can my sword save me, but you've saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we've boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Psalm 54, verse one, another teaching psalm, a mascal of David. Oh God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Psalm chapter 34, verse 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. While we go up the hill of difficulty, while we go through these many afflictions, his name is what we hold on to. His name is what we grip because it's he that delivers us. No horses, no chariots, no 401K, no job, no health, no friends, no family. It's his name. It's been a hard thing to preach so far. I can tell you right now, I bet it's been a hard thing to listen to. Right? Let's be honest. Think about lunch. If I were you, I would be. His name, man, whatever. Airy, it's hard to connect to. I can't grip it. Give me something I can grab. That's the point is you're grabbing something that you can't see and something that you can't touch. You're grabbing something that's being driven by faith, and I can't tell you exactly how this works. 
If we're looking at it in John chapter 17 terms, he says, the, father, or the son is praying to the father. He says, I've kept them in your name. He's the subject. The verb is something that he's doing. I've kept these 11 in your name. I'm asking you, God, to keep them in your name. I'm asking you to keep them from the evil one. He's the subject. He's the one that's working the verb of keeping. I'm preaching on being kept in his name, realizing that we can't keep ourselves in his name. He's the one that does it. So we're talking about something that's airy and ethereal and mysterious. I can't tell you how it works. All I know is that God is the one that does it. I can say this, though. If you hold on to his word and his people, I trust that you will be tethered to the protection of his name. I can say that with all confidence. If you hold on to his word and his people, I trust that you will be protected and tethered to the greatness of his name and the power of his name. That's why I fret so when people that I love and care about, people that I with the other elders have been, we've been given stewardship over their souls, take the gathering of God's people so optional. I'm thinking, man, you're not protected. If you've got energy for every form of recreation known to man, but you've got no energy to engage the living God and the the people of God on a Sunday morning, then I'm going, man, God's not going to be mocked. You think you're going to find protection when he's so optional? I don't know how this works, how the might and power of his name works. All I know is that he's the worker of it. He's the one that does it. And I can promise you this. If you hold to his people and hold on to his word, I trust and believe that you'll be tethered to his name. True protection, godly protection, is found only in that name. It's airy. I know it. The second thing that's more tangible, turn to John chapter 10. I'm glad to be through that part of it, honestly. That's hard. I can see your faces too. I can say, man, I'm tired. It's hard to listen to. It's something worth exploring. It's something worth dining on, something worth discussing and feasting on and considering what does it mean to be in his name. I want to be there. How do I do that? I encourage you shepherds or functional shepherds to continue to process this and talk about it. The second thing in regards to godly protection, the first thing is that it's found in his name. The second thing in regards to godly protection is that it is eternal. Look in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is the chapter where Christ is talking about being the good shepherd. It says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is even able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Three really awesome things from these verses here. Having to do with this eternal protection that Christ prayed for and has been granted to us. Is that we are granted or given eternal life. You didn't earn it. That should be a comfort to you. Because if you thought that you earned it, then you would realize that how often you fail and you go, wait a second, maybe I'm disqualified. But it is a free gift and it's granted 
And this eternal life involves never perishing and never, as in no one ever will be plucked out of his mighty hand. No one can ever pluck you from his mighty hand. Eternal and never and no one are really good words. His people, the people he prayed for this night in John 17, these people and the, thing, the people that he's praying for in the future who will believe through their word, as in us, are protected eternally, though we may not be safe temporally. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. This is a contrast of eternal permanence, our eternal protection with temporal suffering. Last week, we considered this chapter, Matthew chapter 10, and found Christ sending out those he loved, his sheep, sending them out as sheep, not into some hopeful meadow, but sending them out among wolves, knowing up front that those he's sending out, those he loves, will be delivered over to courts, flogged in the synagogues, dragged before governors and kings, that they'll be delivered over, brother over to death, father to child, Children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you'll be hated, and later he says you'll be maligned. That's not not very safe, none of that. In verse 26, though, he says, so have no fear of them. Those who do these things, deliver, flog, drag, rise against those who hate you, those who malign you. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. There's no such thing as something that happens behind closed doors that God never knows about. Whatever difficulty or suffering that's ever happened to you, God knows full well exactly what you've gone through. And he says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Be bold with this message I'm sending you you out with. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The real message here when we're looking at godly protection being, being eternally permanent is really, we have to ask ourselves the question, why do we even fret over someone taking or damaging something that's temporary in the first place? Why do we fight so hard to protect something that we know is only temporary? I, this, this week, I was trying to think about the most temporary things in my life that I've ever experienced. Diapers came to mind. We've raised three kids. Nobody's in diapers now. But they're, they're temporary. Diapers, socks, Paper plates, plastic utensils, the picture of temporary. A bouquet of flowers might last a week, but it's temporary. And something that's really relevant and recent, wrapping paper, right? It's just so temporary. You know that, that person that just drives you crazy that's just so careful with the wrapping while everybody's sitting there watching them? Just rip it open. It's just wrapping paper. It's temporary. Why fret over it? There are far more important things to fret over that are more permanent than temporary wrapping paper. Stuff that doesn't last, we shouldn't fret over because we know it doesn't last. All those temporary things may in and of themselves have value. Diapers have value if you have little babies, don't they? They're gold. Socks have value if you're cold. Yet in contrast with more permanent things, we're less concerned and we should be less concerned. 
I'm not for a moment comparing diapers or socks or paper plates to life because we are supposed to value life. He's built that in us. But in contrast with eternity, this life is as temporary as wrapping paper. In contrast with eternity, this little tiny wink snapshot is as temporary as wrapping paper. Wouldn't you gladly give up this temporary one for a really, really great eternal one? There's something to knowing and realizing that we're wearing tents. We're wearing makeshift lean-tos that are not going to last, that are deteriorating past the point of 20 years old or something like that. You start to, to fall apart. In contrast with eternity, this little period in a tent is like an overnight camping trip. You can endure lots of stuff knowing that it's got an end and that there's a reward where you go home to AC or heat. Christy and I like to watch Survivor. Survivor is a great picture of the, the kind of thing that these people can endure for 39, 40 days, whatever it is. The reason they can endure it is because they know that it has an end point, And they also know there's a reward at the end, potential reward. They have a shot at a million dollars. So they go, go through some very difficult things. We're watching Frontier House right now as a family. It's an old P, a PBS special from years ago where these families are immersed into 18-something 1883, something like that. Nice. <laughs> nice. He's paying attention. That boy's awake, awake right there. I'm going to start preaching to you. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's a great show. But you think, man, these guys go through some difficult stuff, but they go through it knowing that there's an end in, in, in store. You can handle some really difficult things if you know there's a reward in the end. And it's all perspective that says don't fret at what you're going through right now because it is very temporary in contrast with eternity. And the evil one, thankfully, has no impact on your eternal destiny. The evil one cannot take your soul. Don't fear those who can kill your body. If you're going to fear someone, which it says here, don't... Be courageous with those who can take your flesh or kill you. It says, don't fear them. It says, fear the Lord instead. He's not saying be courageous with these guys. He's saying fear the right person with a capital P, the Lord who controls your eternal destiny. The encouragement isn't to be courageous. It's to fear the appropriate person. There's a wisdom that comes in fearing the eternal judge and it sheds new light on suffering. Rather, we should be attentive. Instead of being fearful of those who can damage or hurt the flesh, those who can malign and all these other things that we looked at, instead of fearing them, we should be attentive to the God who protects eternally. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Temporal suffering by itself seems horrible, but in light of eternal protection, it's just wrapping paper. Perspective helps. The protection that Christ prayed for on the eve of his very unsafe yet temporary suffering is eternal. Never snatched, never plucked, never perishing. God's people are granted eternal life. That's the godly protection that he's praying for on the eve of his cross. 
Fear the God who protects eternally. The third thing that's true of godly protection is that it's for purpose. Turn back to John chapter 17. This is where we'll end this morning. Godly protection has a purpose, and it's not just your protection. It's so easy for the gospel to terminate on ourselves, but the terminal point for this protection is not man. There's a purpose that's being worked toward here in protection, and this purpose we see in verse 11. It says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, and here's the request. Keep them in your name. We could import verse 15 in there. Keep them from the evil one, which you, keep them, them in your name, which you've given me. Keep them from the evil one. And then that next word, that, is in the Greek, a henna clause. So that, in order that, they may be one, even as we are one. Protect them for a purpose. Don't protect them just because. Don't pro- just protect them for their own safety or their own protection. Protect them for a purpose. The end in godly protection is the oneness of the people of God as a reflection of the oneness of God. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Protect them from the evil one so they'll look like us, Father, You know, Father, how we're one, interpenetrating, interinvolved, interconnecting, where it's so blurry that you can hardly make out whether Father, Son, or Spirit are working? Father, keep them from the evil one so that the people of God will look like that. Protect them from the work of the evil one. He's praying for protection for his people from the evil one so that they'll look like God. And we've got to know that if he's praying for protection from the evil one so that we'll be one, we've got to see that what fouls up oneness among the people of God is the work of the evil one. We've got to consider that. Here's a few examples of how that shows up. It shows up in a woman that's done with her husband. If marriage is a picture of Christ in the church... You're going to know that Satan is just going to love destroying marriages. If the picture of the husband and wife is the picture of Christ in the church, then Satan is going to love destroying marriages because it destroys what Christ prayed for here, protection from the evil one so that they'll look like me, so they'll look like one. Her friends will give her sage advice like, girl, you know you deserve better. Her friends will tell her, you know God wants you to be happy. Man, I'm going to tell you, this is a supreme picture of the work of the evil one because the illustration of Christ in the church, i.e. marriage, is damaged when a marriage ends in divorce or separation. You think you can look at marriage separately from the picture of the gospel? And you can't because marriage is the picture of the gospel. Divorce and separation are the work of the evil one because he hates oneness. That's one example. Another example of how the evil one messes up oneness, it shows up in a dad who talks in the car on the way home about how aggravated he is with the pastor. I'm going to tell you right now, in the last eight years that Crosspoint has been, the last eight years that I've pastored and preached and eldered with the other elders, 
It's been rare, but this has happened. I know it happens because I can see it in the kids. If dad's running me down or running the other elders down on the way home from a corporate worship service or over dinner, I know that he or she, it might be mom, is doing it because I see how the kids treat me. Kids who once showed reverence, really, and honor. That's the guy that talks on Sundays. He must be important. He's my pastor. Kids who once revered the elders look at you like, you're a chump because I've been listening to daddy. Daddy says you are. Daddy says you got some problems, so I'm done with you. So kids will treat you with distance or disdain. I've seen it before. Kids aren't as good at glad-handing as adults are. Kids are more obvious. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's the work of the evil one. For a dad to drive home and run his mouth about his leadership at church. And I'm not saying the dad has no occasion to ever be aggravated with a pastor or an elder. Because it will happen if you're around long enough. But get with that pastor and elder and work through it. That's what the people of God do to achieve and maintain oneness. The work of the evil one shows up in little roots of bitterness that take root and divide and damage oneness. That's why God is so serious about protecting his people from division. Titus chapter 3 verse 10 Paul writes to Titus, regards to the church, he says, warn the divisive man once, warn him twice, and then have nothing more to do with him. And we can include and know that because he's messing with your oneness. He's messing with your picture to the lost world of what God looks like. One, inter-involved, interconnected, interpenetrating. The evil one loves to divide. I need to put a little caveat in here that I'm not encouraging carte blanche for leadership or teachers or preachers to do or say whatever they want, however they want. And I'm also not encouraging harmony at the expense of what's right and true. I've just given a few examples of how the evil one can subvert the oneness Christ prayed for here. It also happens when a family gets aggravated with another family. They said something in a way I didn't like or they did something somehow that I didn't like. Instead of working through it, we move on. That's the work of the evil one. And he will cloak it in righteousness, and he will always give a good reason. So we divide, and we part, and we leave, and we bail, and we quit each other, and the evil one cheers. Christ's prayer here on the eve of his cross is for protection from the evil one, So they'll look like us. One. There's too much at stake to not work through stuff. Running or leaving or bailing or quitting does not honor God or reflect his character. It's exactly what the evil one wants. Christ prayed for protection from the evil one so his people would look like God. Oneness was the purpose of protection. One last thought on oneness and protection. Worldly safety doesn't contribute to oneness at all. In fact, I think worldly safety may be a deterrent or hindrance 
to oneness. Show me a people that aren't pushing the envelope on scary faith journeys. Show me a people that are playing it safe, and I'll show you people that are ready to devour each other. Show me a people who are adopting, who are serving, who are deaconing, who are shepherding, who are ministering, who are teaching women to love their husbands, who are teaching young men to love Jesus, and I'll show you a people where oneness is happening as this people is all drinking from the same well of faith that is Christ. Oneness happens because they're drinking from the same resource. We're drawing on the same nourishment, nourishment that we really need, so it fosters oneness. Christ prayed for his followers and his future followers on the eve of his cross that they would be protected in his name, the might and power of his name, that they would be protected eternally and that they would be protected from the evil one for the purpose of oneness. Let's pray. God, this has been a hard one to preach, and I wonder if it's found purchase for anybody. I... um, I'm thankful that the word doesn't return void. It's been a hard one to uh, engage. I pray that in some weird way that you'll take this word that we've exposed this morning that we considered and that it'll find purchase in hearts. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We'll take the Lord's Supper now. We'll share something with you that I think is an appropriate closing to our three Sundays on protection. The Chronicles of Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis has Susan. If you know your Chronicles, you know who Susan is. She's the one who's always a bit too concerned with her own well-being. He has Susan ask Mr. Beaver whether Aslan is safe. Aslan is the Christ figure in this story. Mr. Beaver answers, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Later in the story, C.S. Lewis writes this beautiful line, people who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be both good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. A good word, trembly. I would like it as if we took the supper trembly this morning. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I 
suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink. God, we are thankful for the time that we spent together this morning. Lord, I pray that you will keep us in your name. Lord, I'm thankful that you're the mover there and um, thankful that our being in your name isn't dependent on our frailties because I'm uh, often reminded of mine. Lord, I pray that we can walk in what Christ prayed for on the eve of his cross, that we can walk in that protection. I'm thankful that it's eternal, that whatever suffering we may face, even if it is lifelong, that it's just temporary in contrast with eternity. I pray that that perspective will give us an endurance that we wouldn't have otherwise. Or two, I pray that this prayer that Christ prayed on the eve of his cross in regards to protection for the purpose of oneness, I pray that you'll protect us and keep us from the work of the evil one. That we can do the hard work of working through stuff whether it be a marriage or whether it be a journey together as a church or whether it be neighbors walking through difficult things with each other, there's too much at stake for us to bail and quit and leave. But Lord, I pray that we can work through things for your glory and that we can put the picture of the oneness of Father, Son, and Spirit on display. Lord, we love you. We give you this week. Pray that you'll guard us from medicating with food and pray for moderation as worship. I pray for fellowship with our family members and friends in this, this next week that will bring glory to you. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We turn the rest of this day and this week over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks. Y'all dismissed.